Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're going through 1 Samuel. Last week, we started with a tremendous amount of hope in chapter seven. Israel gathered at Mizpah. They've made a decision, all right, we give up. We're tired of serving these false gods and these false idols. It's gotten us nowhere. We're in big trouble. Samuel calls them to repentance. They gather at Mizpah and they all repent and they turn their hearts back to the Lord. But then by the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 8, we're told that the hearts turn again and they're no longer wanting the Lord. Scripture tells us that they looked at God and decided that they did not want Yahweh to be their king anymore. They would rather have a king like every other nation. So last week started on a high note and then ended unbelievably sad. Israel cried out, we want a king like every other nation. So today, in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, we're gonna see how God answered that prayer request. Israel wanted a king that looked like every other nation, so God is going to give them a king that looks like every other nation. You ready? Well, I hope so, because I'm about to start. Go to 1 Samuel chapter nine, and we're gonna start in verse one. I'm gonna read a little, talk a little. We'll go verse one, probably down to 10, and then we'll reflect a little bit. 1 Samuel 9, one says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He was a son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bokorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. He was a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. All right, so Saul probably would have gone to Red Hills Church. (laughs) If you're listening online and you don't get that joke, there are a lot of tall people in this church. Verse three, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to, his Saul, said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, and they did not find them. So then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came, they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, the servant says to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city and he is a man who is held in honor. And all that he says comes true. So now let us go therefore and perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, 
What can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, well, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And I did a little math before the service. This is roughly the equivalent in today's money of $2.16. Verse nine is a clarifying statement about why they're talking about the prophet as a seer. Verse nine says, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. That's a clue that the book of 1 Samuel was written many years later after these events took place. Different cultural norms had taken place and prophets weren't seers anymore, they were prophets. The verse 10, Saul said to his servant, well said, come let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So the story of Israel's first king begins with this young man named Saul. To get a reference for what's happening in this text, let's go to the map. We're gonna start off in the Middle East region We're gonna zoom in here, and if you'll pause at this place, these are the locations that were all referenced in chapter nine. So we're in Israel. This is after Joshua has uh, conquered the land, but this is for before the time of the kings. We're learning how the time of the kings came about. And the story starts in Gibeah with this guy named Saul. Saul's dad has lost some donkeys and asked Saul to go find them. So where does Saul go to look for the donkeys? If you play through the animation, he travels north up through Mizpah, over to the hill country of Ephraim, if you'll pause there. He goes through Shalishah, he goes through Shalim. This is how far he's gone. Now, it's difficult to get a distance on these because some of these regions are guesses. A lot of archeology span hasn't discovered these regions because they weren't actually cities, they were just common speak regions. But best guess, this is probably round trip 30 to 40 miles of travel. So this wasn't an afternoon, this was multiple days of Saul starting to search for these donkeys up through the hill country, through the mountains, and he can't find these donkeys anywhere. Now, what I wanna show you next is where we're going so that we don't go back and constantly reference the map. So what I'm gonna show you next, we haven't talked about yet, but it is coming towards the end of nine and into 10. After he heads over to the city, the area of Zuf, this is uh, Ramah, this is where uh, Samuel was. When we left him in chapter uh, seven and eight, when he goes back and he's doing the circuit riding, his hometown is Ramah, and Ramah is in the land of Zuf. So Saul and his servant are in the area that is near the city of uh, Samuel, the prophet. So what's gonna happen next is he's going to travel down, uh, well, he's gonna go from that one little point uh, 
there's a red line without a dot. That's gonna travel, he's gonna go down to Ramah, and that's where he's gonna uh, have a, a conversation with Samuel, we'll cover that in a minute. He's gonna travel over to Gibeath Elohim, back up to Mizpah, which we talked about at the very beginning, that's where they had the big gathering of repentance. There's gonna be a big, another ceremony at the end of 10, and then he's gonna head back to Gibeah. I'm only showing you this now, so you have a mental picture for where we're going, but we haven't covered that just yet. The thing I wanna draw out in the first 10 verses is the way that the author is trying to help us as the reader understand the way God is answering Israel's prayer. Israel said, we want a king like every other nation. And then we see this young man. This young man is wealthy, he's handsome, and he's tall, and he's not particularly good with livestock. But also, he's unfamiliar with the most famous prophet in all of Israel. The servant knows who Samuel is, but Saul, I don't know how, but somehow has no clue who this guy is. Now that's interesting because, just a quick spoiler alert, as we go through this story, Saul is going to be the one that is crowned as king. So Saul, we don't know it yet, but we'll get there. He's gonna be the one that's king. And if we look at the description of this young man, he is a very peculiar choice for being king. Almost all of the leaders of Israel leading up to this point were described as being a prophet. Abraham, prophet. Moses, prophet. Prophetic calling seems to be a mantle on many of the leaders that are supposed to be leading Israel, but then we've got this guy who doesn't even know who the prophet is. Another interesting fact is that if you go back and you track most of the leaders of Israel up until this point, most of them were shepherds. Most of them had, had experience shepherding flocks out in the wilderness, and the reason why is because the best leaders are shepherds. Having a shepherd's heart makes you a really good leader because leading people is a lot like leading livestock. This is why Jesus in the New Testament talks about the sheep as the people of God, knowing his voice. This culture runs deep. Shepherding culture is synonymous with good leadership in the Bible. And we've got a guy here who can't find a couple donkeys the largest livestock there is in this country. But there's another interesting thing that's, that stands out to us. It's called out here at the beginning, and it's also gonna be called out again, is that Saul is described as being tall. He's the only Israelite in the entire Bible that is described as being tall. In fact, the only other people that are described as being tall in the Bible are Israel's enemies. The Nephilim are tall, the Rephaim are tall, the Amorites are tall, the Anakim are tall. In fact, many of these tall enemies of Israel had incredibly tall kings. Og of Bashan, we're told, had a bed that was 13 feet long. And he came from a tribe of giants. Amos tells us that the tribe he came from, they were like as tall as cedar trees. These dudes were massive. So why is this guy God's choice? 
Well, do you remember Israel's prayer? We want a king like all the other nations. God says, all right, I'm gonna give you a king like all the other nations. I'm gonna give you a guy who looks like the king of all the other nations. I'm gonna give you a guy who has no respect for prophetic culture, and I'm gonna give you a guy who doesn't know anything about shepherding. Saul as a choice was a kind of judgment for Israel. You want a king like every other nation? I'm gonna give you a king like every other nation. But here's the fascinating thing. Even though God chose Saul to be king over Israel as a kind of judgment over his people because of the prayers they were praying, he still loved Saul. And he still anointed and gave Saul a shot. But what's Saul gonna do with it? Let's keep reading, got into verse 11. It says, as they went up to the hill country to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and they said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you, hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. And afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel. Now just quick pause, this isn't important, but I find it fascinating. When we were going through Hebrews, I talked about Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. I talked about Hebrew idioms, specifically the one in Psalm 40, verse six, about the Lord not delighting in sacrifices and offerings, but he gave us, or he, he dug ears out for us so that we can hear. You remember that? This is another one of those. The phrase in English is translated as revealed, but in Hebrew the word is, the Lord had uncovered his ears. The Lord uncovered Samuel's ears. It's not super important, but I find it fascinating. The implication being that the Lord is at work all the time, and in his love, he happens to just uncover your ears and let you in on the secrets of what's going on, if you wanna know. And Samuel wanted to know because he was the Lord's man, he was the prophet. And God says, all right, Samuel, I'm gonna give you a heads up. Tomorrow about this time, a guy is going to show up. He's from the tribe of Benjamin and that's the man I want you to anoint as king. So Samuel is already ready. Verse 16, the Lord had told Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? And Samuel said to Saul, I'm a seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you're gonna eat with me. And in the morning, I will tell you, excuse me, I will let you go and I will tell you all that is on your mind. But as for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them. 
they've already been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all of your father's house? That verse is one of the indications uh, or, or kind of the downsides of reading from a translation that is um, almost like word for word or a very literal translation. Sometimes the translators are pulling from a Hebrew text into English and it, it just doesn't make any sense. So you can find translations that are more thought for thought, but essentially what he's saying here is, um, don't you know that all of Israel's eyes are about to turn from you? You can stop worrying about those donkeys because you're about to be the center of attention, my guy. That's the translation, my translation. Saul answered, and he's kind of, his mind is blown. Saul answers and said, wait, wait, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of, tribe of Benjamin? So, why have you spoken to me this way? Why are you talking about everybody in Israel, all their eyes turning to me, when my tribe is the slow, my, my, my tribe of Benjamin is the smallest tribe among Israel, and my family among that tribe is the smallest family? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave him a place at the head of those who had been invited. There were about 30 people. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you the one I said to you, put it aside. Oh man, so Samuel really knew Saul was coming. They made a meal for him and set it aside knowing he would show up. So the cook took up the leg and that what was on it and set it before Samuel and said to him, see, what was kept is set before you. Now eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place to the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Okay, could you imagine what's going through Saul's head at this moment? He's like, look, I've just got $2 in my pocket, and I wanted to know if I could pay you to tell me where the donkeys are. But Samuel looks at him, he's like, I've been looking for you. Which is fascinating because what happens in this story is that Saul leaves home looking for donkeys, but he finds out along the way that he's the one that's being looked for. It's not the donkeys that are lost, it's Saul who's lost. And so Saul comes up thinking, I've got this question, it's real simple, like I'll get out of your hair if you could just help me with this livestock situation. And Samuel's like, well, stay for dinner. Stay for dinner, spend the night with me, up on my rooftop abode, and then tomorrow morning, I'll tell you what you wanna know, and don't worry about the donkeys. Things are about to change in your life. So Saul's like, um, okay, I guess I'm here for that. What are we doing? What was probably happening was there was a new moon festival. This isn't a major festival, but there were these smaller festivals in these little corners of Israel at this time. Some of them celebrated the moon, some of them celebrated it was harvest time, and they would make these sacrifices and the priests would come and do their thing, and that was probably what was happening. A small group of leaders in this town had gathered together, thrown a feast because it was coming up on harvest time and they wanted to thank God for all the blessings. And they asked Samuel to come up and basically do the offering and pray over the meal. So Saul comes up and he's like, hey, I got a question. Samuel's like, I'll answer your question, but I want you to come with me. So he comes up and he sits him next to the prophet in a place of honor at the table. 
And then he provides a meal for him at the table, a meal that was waiting on him. And then after the dinner, they go back to the house. Now this is kind of unfamiliar. If, if someone was gonna tell you, I'm gonna roll out a sleeping bag and you're gonna sleep on my roof tonight, you wouldn't associate that with hospitality. But in this culture, you're out in the Judean wilderness and the roof was the best place to sleep. Because at night, a breeze is blowing through the desert and on the rooftop, you had a roof. It was almost like a closed porch and the air is blowing through the porch while you're sleeping. Your room is the only one with air conditioning. This is a place of honor. And so what we're seeing here is that the author is trying to, in this narrative story, get you to see some things about God's character in relation to how he works with his people. There's two big things that the author wants us to see here. The first is this idea that God is working behind the scenes while we are currently wandering around in the wilderness looking for donkeys. While you are going through your day, feeling completely inconvenienced because the person didn't tell you what they were supposed to, they didn't keep you up to date with their plans, or you're having to do extra work because the person that you work with didn't really do their job, you're just unbelievably inconvenienced and put out while you are out feeling those feelings of inconvenience, the Lord is working in the midst of them. When you're wandering through life like a tumbleweed just passing along, feeling like you're not really making any uh, impact, or maybe you don't want to make any impact. You're an introvert, you're like, I don't want anybody to even notice me. I don't want people to talk to me. I don't want people to know if I was there or not. It would be like, please don't say anything to me. I just kind of want to toss through life. I don't want to be found. The Lord is saying, no, no. I'm coming for you. I'm gonna find you. This story that's filled with some of the strangest normal occurrences of everyday life, a guy couldn't find his donkey, so he went to this town, this town, this town, this, it seems so insignificant, and then we find all of a sudden that the Lord is behind it. The Lord is probably the one who sent his donkeys off, and the Lord is the one who kept him from finding his donkeys. Why? Because the Lord wanted Saul found. First big thing that stands out to us. God is working in the midst of all of these normal things every day. Life, the second thing that the author wants us to see is God is sovereign over, over all of those little things in everyday life. The Lord is working in the ways and the means. He ordains the ends and he ordains the process. And he is arranging specific things and setting you up and putting you in specific places so that you have conversations with somebody online or maybe you just happen to go to church one day and you don't really know why you're here. But all of a sudden somebody says one thing and it just starts ringing in your ear and you can't let it go and it bothers you at night. Then it wakes you up and you think about it in the morning while you're eating your cereal and you just can't shake this thing. I got bad news for you. Holy Spirit's on you. You've been sighted in, you've got nowhere to run. He's coming for you because he ordains all of it. He's over 
all of it. Those things that you think are menial and insignificant, he's working in those ways to accomplish his purposes. This is what the author wants us to see. And that's why we took so many verses walking through just lost donkeys, a meal, um, uh, uh, sleeping on the roof one night. All of it is revealing the same things that the New Testament is revealing every single time we read about somebody coming to Christ. The woman at the well, Nicodemus. You've got all these situations where people to come to Jesus and they're convinced, I just need to ask you about it. one quick thing, Jesus. Like we know you're a prophet and two seconds into the conversation, the whole conversation is flipped and they realize that they're not the one asking the questions. Now Jesus is the one asking the questions. Why does it look the same? Because it's the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament and it's the same God that is at work today. And that's why just the very moment you think you've start getting, like the moment you think you've got everything figured out, all of a sudden you're confronted with a holy God and you realize you've got nothing figured out. And the thing that you were looking for all of a sudden becomes inconsequential because you discover that you're the thing that he's been looking for. He's been pursuing you. So the beauty of this passage is seeing the work of Christ with Samuel being a foreshadow of Jesus. That hey, those of you who are wandering through life, those of you who are lost, those of you who are stricken with the most boring, menial lives of all time, I've got good news for you. There's a table set for you. And there's a meal that's been prepared for you. And there's a home that you have a place to rest at. The kingdom of God is ready for you to participate and be seated in a place of honor to rule and reign with Christ Almighty. It's already been prepared through the work of the cross. And you think you're just wandering and trying to work and figure some things out. You're gonna find pretty soon that you're the one who he's looking for. And an invitation is gonna come your way and you're gonna have an opportunity like Saul. Do you take the invitation? Do you sit down at the table? Do you see where this thing leads? Or do you say, mm, I think I'll take my $2.16 somewhere else? Let's continue. Verse 26. This is at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul up on the roof, up that we may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out to the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passes on, stop here yourself for a while and I will make known to you the word of God. And then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people of Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, if you're following along in your Bible and you have a different translation, you're like, that is a lot more words that's in my translation. The reason why is because the translators of this uh, version, the ESV version, um, what's the easiest way to describe this? Most modern translations are based off of the Masoretic text that comes to us at around 1000 AD. 
That's the oldest manuscript that we have. That was what the King James Version was based off of. A lot of other translations are based off of it. But something wild happened uh, around the 1950s-ish. A bunch of older manuscripts and the current ones that we have were found in a cave in Israel in this place called Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of them were dated all the way back to like 100, 200 years before Jesus was born. And some of the texts that were in these manuscripts had things that weren't in the oldest or the most recent manuscripts that we had, which were the ones from around 1,000. And so translators have to make uh, a call. Okay, do we go with the oldest stuff? Do we go with the tradition? What we're finding here is the things that were in older traditions that are not in newer traditions doesn't necessarily change the theology, but there is some information that is missing. So either whoever was translating it did a poor job translating it, maybe in the copy they were translating, it wasn't in. So what the ESV did was they went back to the older Septuagint version. These are a few lines that were in that translation and they added it into this one. But if you're reading from the New American Standard or the King James, that verse may seem a little little bit shorter. Familiar? Good. If that upsets you and you're like, oh, that changes everything, come see me after service. <laughs> it really isn't that big of a deal, but verse two. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men from Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin of Zilzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to God at Bethel, and they will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Please don't lose how specific this prophecy is. This is wild. Samuel tells Saul, you are anointed as the next king of Israel, and I'm gonna tell you the next three things are gonna happen to you as a way to affirm that God is actually in this. When you leave here, you're gonna meet uh, two guys over at this tomb, and they're gonna tell you your donkeys are found. And then you're gonna go down a little farther and you're gonna to come to this oak at Tabor and you're gonna find three guys. One's gonna be holding three young goats, another three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hands. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim where there is a garrison of the Philistines and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp one will have a tambourine, a flute, there'll be a lyre there before them, and they will be prophesying. And at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be turned into another man. Now, when these, th when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt, burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, show you what you shall do. He's essentially saying, after all these things happen and you know that God is in this, I want you to wait for me and we're gonna have a big ceremony and let the rest of Israel know. So let's back up and cover all this because this is fascinating. The next morning after the dinner, Saul and Samuel wake up Samuel 
says to Saul, send your servant down the road, I have a few things to tell you. And the first thing he does is anoint him as king over Israel. The first king. And he tells them, there are three things that are gonna happen after this, and these three things are gonna affirm that God is really in this. Here's the first thing. There's gonna be a tomb. Then there's gonna be a tree. Then there's gonna be a city. The tomb, the tree, and the city. And in each one of these mile markers, you're gonna have an experience that is gonna profoundly change you because every moment, the moment you walk up and you see this thing happening before your eyes that I told you is going to happen, you're gonna be struck with the awesome sovereign power of a God who arranges and orchestrates meetings and how much more powerful he is than you. On your best day, you couldn't call this, Saul. He's setting him up to help him understand what he's going to be doing. He is told, you're gonna to be prince over my people. Now later, he's gonna be called king, but on the, on, the, on, the off, on the offset, when it first begins, he tells him, you're gonna be the prince, and the reason why is because you are my man among Israel. I'm still king, I'm still sovereign, I'm still the one that can tell you what's going to happen in your future. I'm the one who sees clearly. You are not the one who sees clearly. And so when you step into this role, your job is to serve under me. I set the rules. I set the boundaries, not you. You're going you're gonna to be tempted to look around at all you've built and start thinking to yourself, look what I did. Look what I pulled off. I'm kind of impressive. This is my kingdom. God is reminding him through three unique encounters that, buddy, this is not your kingdom. None of this belongs to you. This belongs to me. And I am anointing you to keep charge over it on my behalf. You are my king. You are serving on my behalf. You serve at the pleasure of me. I'm choosing you, and you need to know your place. So he gives them these really specific things, and then the last one is you're gonna come up to this city, and you're gonna see these men coming down, and they're gonna be prophesying and worshiping the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord is gonna rush on you, and it's gonna change you. It's gonna change you into a completely different guy, and when that happens, your responsibility is to leave that place and then go and do whatever it is that your hands find to do because the Lord is with you. That's important and we'll come back to that later. But it's really important for us to examine what's happening with the prophets in this circumstances in this circumstance, because what Samuel is saying is that God is sovereign over all these things, and he's working in the midst of his people, and he's using things that will take place and telling you beforehand as a way to affirm to you that he is the one in charge, but it also affirms the role of the prophet. I would say I'm gonna tread lightly here, but that's not really my style, so I'm just gonna go for it. This is really important in the days to come. Because we're told in the New Testament that there's not just gonna be a lot of Christs rising up saying, 
Jesus is over here. Jesus is over there. We're also told in the New Testament that a lot of false prophets are going to rise up in the end times. And their sole goal is to lead the people of God astray, some of them well-meaning, some of them not well-meaning, under the influence of demonic forces. So how do you know if someone who fancies themselves a prophet is actually a prophet? The words they speak in God's name about the things that will take place, they actually happen. That's how you judge a prophet. Now all prophecy is not just foretelling or saying things that are going to happen ahead of time. Some prophecy is foretelling. It is just a proclamation, not necessarily declaring things that will happen. You see this some of, uh, in the New Testament. Philip has three daughters that prophesy. They're not constantly going around telling the future. There is, uh, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is giving boundaries for how prophecy is supposed to be used in the church. The sense isn't that it's always just, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen. There is a sense that prophecy is, God, is God's people speaking forth what God brings to their mind. But if someone stands up and tells you, I'm a prophet, and this guy is going to be president, and then he doesn't become president, stop listening to that guy. That guy's not a prophet. This is important because as we move forward, there will be more and more and more people who claim to speak with the authority of God, but the things that they say, they don't come true. And the way they get out from under it is, ah, I got that one wrong. Maybe next time. Maybe the waves got crossed. Maybe I didn't hear it right. Look, man, biblically, we should stone you. but I'm gonna back off just a little bit and just not listen to you anymore. I'm not listening to your YouTube channel. I'm not subscribing to you anymore. We are done, false prophet. That's just a side thing. Let's go to verse nine. It says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these things came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the Spirit of God rushed upon him just as Samuel said it would. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the, sons, with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man, the, uh, a man of the place answered, who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servants, where did you go? And he said, to see the donkeys. Excuse me, to seek the donkeys. And when he saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel the prophet said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, the kingdom he had just been crowned king over, he did not tell him anything. So everything that Samuel said came to pass, but even more than the signs that came to pass, we're told in verse nine that God gave him a new heart. 
God changed this man in this encounter. The Spirit of God rushed upon him and gave him a new heart. And everyone could see it. Everybody that knew him, that's not the same kid. Who's this guy's father? Like, things look completely different. I remember when I got saved in 1998. When I left my junior year of high school, in May of 98, I was one man. And when I came back in August of 98, I was a completely different man. When Christ saved me, he gave me a new heart and I was never the same again. Almost unrecognizable to people that I had called friends before. Because God had changed me, I, mean, I, was, a, I was a new man. The only way to describe it is I received a new heart. But what I find fascinating is that when Saul was given a new heart, this was a sovereign thing that God did. He orchestrated the whole events, he set him up, he got him to the place, he got the word, Samuel gave him the word, then told him what was gonna happen over the next three events of his life. And when it happened, God gave him a new heart. Saul didn't give himself a new heart. God gave him a new heart. But then Samuel tells Saul, you have to do something with this new heart. He says in verse seven, now when these things meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. This is the equivalent of like 1 Corinthians 10, 33, where Paul tells us, in whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. You have now been given a new heart, now go do something with that heart. What is the first thing Saul does with that new heart? He hides it. He hides it from his servant. He hides it from his uncle. And, he, and he's not done hiding. This is a character issue that Saul is gonna to have to deal with and it's gonna come up multiple times as we continue through the story. Saul received a new heart, but with that new heart, he was in charge to share the things that God had done with him. God crowned me king. He's an anointed me. I have things that I need to do now that God is with me. But what does he do? He hides. Why does he hide? Because he's insecure. He's afraid of people. He wants people to like him. And he's disobedient. Samuel is clear. Do something with the heart God has given you. And Saul says, I'd rather not. Let's finish the story, verse 17. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God. Come on, Samuel, my man. We are at the coronation ceremony where we are proclaiming to all of Israel that Samuel, that Saul is about to come, become king and what does Samuel lead with? Conviction. I know what we're about to do here, but I just wanna remind everybody while we're here, how we got here. This isn't, this isn't because God just said, all right, Israel, it is time for you to have a king. No, you are a bunch of stiff-necked, rebellious people. You wanted a king like every other nation, so God's gonna give you a king like every other nation. In fact, where is that king now? Let's find out. 
Verse 20, it says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot, and he brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clans and the clan of the, Mer- uh, the, the, the Matrites, and they were taken by Lot, and the Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Where's your new king? Now oh, I can't find him. Well, where is, where is he? So the people inquire of the Lord. Verse 22, they inquire of the Lord again. Is there a man still to come? Lord, is there a guy? We all gather to see the guy. Where's the guy? And the Lord says, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Oh man, this is not starting off well. So then they ran and took him from there. They had to take the guy out of the luggage. He's hiding in a U-Haul behind the Samsonite luggage. And they had to pull him out So he would step up and do what he has to do. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, yeah, long live the king. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid laid it up before the Lord. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his own home at Gibeah. And when he went, men of valor whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So the day has come for everyone to find out who God's choice is. And he's hiding among the luggage. What is it that God, what is it that Samuel told him to do once God had come upon him, his heart had changed? Go and do what it is that you're supposed to do. You've been anointed king. God is with you. He's changed you. He's given you a new heart so that you can do this. Now go do it. What does Saul do? He runs and hides. Saul's like, man, all I wanted was just find some donkeys. I don't want to be king. I don't want anybody knowing my name. I'm afraid of people. I don't want them knowing my name. I'm gonna hide from this calling. I don't want to do what God has given me to do. As I said, this character flaw is gonna come back in later chapters in Saul, but I wonder how much of this character flaw comes up in the hearts of the people in this room. That you have been hand-selected by God Almighty He snatched you up. He put you at his table with a meal. He gave you his own home to sleep in. He anointed you. He changed you into a different person. He gave you a new heart and then said, go get to work. But many of us can't find the work to do. We read about a man who was wandering through life, aimlessly trying to find something that would make his dad happy. He's only really caring about keeping his parents happy. He's not living his own life or becoming a man or growing up. He's living in the shadow of his parents or in the shadow of his job or he's living in the shadow of his mistakes. And God found him found him in the middle of the nonsense and, and found him in the middle of the, 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 the boringness of life and saved him and then said, go do something with this. You're not Saul, but what God has done in your life is very similar to what he did in Saul's life. 
You were sat at a table. You were given a place of honor. You were given the Spirit of God living on the inside of you. And then he told you, go ye therefore. Share with everyone you know what has been done in your life. Tell your coworker about the new heart. Let your in-laws, the next time you go to Thanksgiving, see that you have become a new man and changed. Talk with people at school about this faith that is so profoundly supposed to be shaping your life and stop letting the world shape you. Stop hiding. Stop shirking your responsibilities and avoiding what God has called you to do and get to work. Go and do whatever it is that the Lord has for you to do because he is with you. As we close today, I don't want you to miss how at work God is in the smallest, minute little details because you can be convinced that these things that happen on your calendar, they're insignificant. They're in your way. They're a hurdle you have to cross. These things are an inconvenience. Church, that's not how the Bible frames our lives. Your kids, not an inconvenience. Your job, not an inconvenience. We're not trying to go through life just checking off the things that we have to do so we can get to the things that we want to do. That's not what the Bible presents to us as a transformed life. What the Bible is presenting to you is that the moment you come to Christ and you're anointed and things change, you get a new heart, then everything in your life changes and all of the normal stuff that's been happening every single day, now it has purpose. So tomorrow morning when you wake up, don't ask yourself, God, how long is it going to take me to find the donkeys today? <laughs> Wake up and ask yourself, who am I going to meet along the way? Who is God going to put across my path that he wants me to talk to him about? Who am I going to stumble across today while I'm looking for my donkeys that he wants to completely change their life. So church, stop looking at your daily life as something that you just have to get through. It is something that has been ordained and organized by a holy God who has purpose in every small, minute, inconvenient conversation and errand. And if you just try to get through that as fast as possible, I'm telling you, you're robbing yourself of understanding the glory of a God who arranges the universe for his own glory. We're not just looking for donkeys. We're on a mission, and the mission is to share the good news of Jesus. Amen? Let's close. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.